Has it occurred to you that the systems we live by are not designed to get results? We pay for procedures instead of outcomes, focusing on emergencies rather than preventing disease and living a healthy lifestyle. For over 25 years, I've taken care of Olympians, Paralympians, A-list actors, and Fortune 1000 companies. If I do not get results, they do not get results. I realized that while powerful people who control the system want to keep the status quo, if I were to educate the masses, you would demand change. So I'm taking the gloves off and going after the systems as they are. Join me on my mission to create a new tomorrow as I chat with industry experts, elite athletes, thought leaders, and government officials about how we activate our vision for a better world. We may agree and we may disagree, but I'm not backing down. I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I'm your host, Ari Gronich, and I am back with Kyle Davies from Wales. He was on the show before. I had to keep talking to him. Longer conversation because he's so fascinating. He's a chartered psychologist, therapist, coach, trainer, author, and he's the creator of Energy Flow Coaching, which provides a framework and process for tapping into our innate ability to attain optimum health, well-being, creativity, and clarity of mind. Kyle, take it away a little bit. Tell us a little bit about how come, I, how come I'm having you back on here? I mean, what is so fascinating about the work that you do that is so unusual that I, that I would say, hey, I, I, I need you to come back? It's great to be back. Thanks for having me again. And ooh, you've really put me on the spot there. Uh, it's funny, we're, we're, we're definitely living in a time where there are more healers and healing modalities than ever before in history. And there's obviously a lot of good people out there doing a lot of good work. Uh, and I lose track of everything that's out there. Go back kind of 20, 25 years um, when I started practicing as a therapist, the, I, I kind of thought I knew everything that was out there. I had, a, I had a handle on it. Whereas now it's just kind of mushroom drinking. There are so many things out there. Um, but what is, what's sort of unique about what I do? Um, I'm sure it's probably the way I do it. I'm sure there are a lot of, there's a lot of overlap in, in many ways. I think it's probably because I'm, um, in a very simple level, I am looking at, uh, as I touched on in, in the last show, that I'm looking at uh, um, when people experience symptoms of fatigue or pain, even anxiety and depression, I'm looking at, um, at them from a perspective of it's a body and brain in a chronic state of stress. But I actually look at it from this idea that, right, well, the symptom is a messenger. And if you experience a severe symptom, it's actually your body's really shouting at you. So the simplest of examples could be, uh, well, if I'm if my body needs me to eat, it sends me a sensation in the form of very often a mild rumbling. And that's 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 a tap on the shoulder inviting me to do something. If I if I ignore that, it goes away and then it comes back. Uh, and I can continue to uh, ignore it, but it'll keep coming back. And each time it comes back, Arguably, it'll be a little bit more intense or it may change or morph into something else. 
so my I, I take that idea and apply it to the symptoms of the health challenges that I'm working with. The, the underlying the, there's an underlying message behind a symptom, and it's not necessarily that that you know as if the symptom has or the symptoms have morphed, changed, or got worse over time. It's not necessarily that the message is any different. So I, I have a book called The Intelligent Body, which is I've got my, nicely positioned behind my head there. And in that, I talk about something called what I see as the hallway of health. And the hallway of health effectively means that people walk down a hallway, and as they walk down that hallway, symptoms seem to get worse or more intense. So what I noticed in working with people with chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, ME, uh, post-viral fatigue, is that they didn't, it, they weren't kind of perfectly healthy and then all of a sudden they got those challenges. Uh, for the most part, what, what it would seem like was that they, when much younger, they would present with a variety of other symptoms. So very often people would say, well, I'm 45 now. I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue three years ago and I probably had symptoms and maybe a couple of years before that. And if we dig a little bit deeper, they may say, well, actually when I was 15, I used to get migraines. Uh, but then I went to the doctor and the doctor gave me some meds, so though that went away. And then when I was a student, I began to get some anxiety and, and some occasional stomach upset. But I sort of changed my diet a bit and I don't know, things changed and that went away. And then when I was, I began to get fatigue symptoms and then a bit of the anxiety came back. So that tends to be a pattern and from the way I looked at it was that people were walking down a hallway and even though I do acknowledge that all of these conditions are sort of different, I do kind of believe that in many instances, the message is largely the same. And even though the symptoms could change for an individual, sometimes they don't. Sometimes a person experiences anxiety age 15 and age 45, they still have anxiety. It's just maybe much worse. But it could be that the symptoms change as as they get older. And again, like hunger, there seems to be this uh, cyclic kind of nature where symptoms come and then they recede and then they come back again and either a little bit, a little bit more intense or they, they vary. And it is almost as if the body is saying, you need to listen to me. You need to listen to the message that I'm trying to convey. And if you don't, I'm going to shout at you a little bit louder. So that's one of the things. So then, so you know, I suppose we are, again, we are in, in, with our medicalized mindset, we tend to view symptoms as bad, evil invaders that we want to do something about. And we have a very symptom focused approach, which is again from conventional medicine, which is, well, do give me something to work on the symptoms. So that's the, that, that, so there's a bit of mindset in there. It's trying to get people to look at symptoms as help, helpful messengers rather than looking at them as evil invaders. So that's the first kind of chunk of, of my work. It, but it then goes into, again, like I touched on in the last show, this idea of, well, where does my experience come from? Because if my body is stressed and if there's a big chunk of emotional stress in that, what gives rise to that experience? So I, I try, I, well, I do take people on something of a spiritual journey, which is begin to have them understand or expand their sense of identity, who they see and believe themselves to be in relation to kind of life and all that is. Sounds, you know, here's the, the cool thing about this is if you're hungry, right? You say to somebody, eat, not take a pill. 
typically. It, it wouldn't be, let's, let's take a pill for that to suppress the hunger pangs. Although we do that in Western society and Western medicine a lot is, uh, you know, do something, take something in order to suppress. If you got a headache and it's because you haven't had enough water, you've been drinking too much soda, I wouldn't say take a migraine pill for that headache. I'd say drink some water and you'll take care of the cause of the symptom. And we do a lot, you, you mentioned a little bit, I mean, in our Western medicine thinking, we do a lot of symptom control versus root cause control. And by doing that, we can suppress symptoms, but cause the root, the, make the root cause get worse and worse and worse, which is why we have this massive deterioration of health over the years. And I like your, your analogy of walking down the hall because, you know, as I picture people piling on their symptoms as they walk down the, the hall, I also picture that picture of man going from straight up and starting to bend over and bend over and bend over. And it's the weight of all of these symptoms that are causing us to all of a sudden, you know, you get 80 years old and you're staring at your feet. You can't look up anymore because your back is too arched and we didn't do anything to take care of the cause. We only were treating symptoms and it just kept piling up. So the final sort of interesting piece on that well, for me, it's sort of interesting, sorry, on that the hallway of health idea is that what I'm trying to do is have people turn around and walk back down the hallway. And the interesting bit I think about that is that it's very often the case that as people go back down the hallway back towards health, is that the the pattern of symptoms often kind of reverses itself. So if I have someone, someone that says, well, actually, yeah, the first sort of symptom I had was sleep disturbance, then it's very often that either sleep disturbance reappears or is the last symptom to go. Or if somebody says, well, I used to have anxiety before I had chronic fatigue, I used to have anxiety. Very often people say, oh, well, I don't, I haven't had, I've had a month of no chronic fatigue-like symptoms of aches, pains, brain fog, but what I have had is a returning of my anxiety. And I'll say, well, that's a good thing because you're walking back down the hallway of health. So that's, that's a sort of, I, I think that's kind of a, an interesting idea that, I, uh, the, and particularly, one of the things I emphasize to my clients is that the message behind the symptom may not be drastically different. So when you had mild uh, headaches, whatever it was 20 years ago, maybe that the message was exactly the same as it is now you're kind of wiped out with chronic fatigue, you know, 20 years later. What we tend to do, I think unconsciously, is we equate the, 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 the necessary size of the solution to the size of the problem. So if I've got really big symptoms, there's got to be a really big cause. And that, in my experience, that isn't necessarily the case. It could be that actually what's happened is the body is just shouting a little bit louder and a little bit louder. Uh, and if we can understand what that is, that causes, because the difficulty is, I, I you know, I, I can see the difficulty is, as you said, with, with a headache, a headache can mean just so many different things. And of course, the type of health practitioner you go to is going to is going to be viewing your symptoms from from their perspective. But this is one of the things that I find is the majority, because not many people have heard of me, um, the majority of people I work with will have seen three, four, five, up to 10 
different health practitioners before they've seen me. So they will have worked on diet. They will have had acupuncture. Um, they, you know, they may have had some counseling. So there'll be a number of things they will have worked on. Um, so that again is probably why, even though I, you know, I, I believe that, well, nutrition, sleep, exercise, emotion, these are all the pillars of health. Very often the people that I work with have addressed the other areas first and they, they uh, they're still missing that big emotional piece, which, which I feel is the kind of the main piece. And I think the kind of the, the uh, adverse childhood experiences research, uh, ACEs, known about childhood trauma, has really brought to the fore the, this connection between mind and body and how trauma and emotional trauma in early life and probably any point in life can ultimately lead to a whole host of things from poor educational attainment through to addiction, through to mental health problems, through to diabetes, stroke, cancer, heart disease. Um, so I, I think that's kind of opened up people's eyes because it seems that more people are, are aware of this because tra trauma is such a buzzword now, isn't it, in, within health? Yeah, um, yeah, it is a buzzword. However, here's my question to you. Somebody's walking down the road. They get a twinge. They don't notice the twinge or they notice it as a subtle thing and they ignore it. Then they continue to walk, continue to walk, continue to walk. And we'll say that they're walking down a really long hallway because it's, you know, it's, it takes time. So a year long hallway, right? And then it gets to a place where it's unignorable. How can somebody acknowledge what's happening before it becomes unignorable? Yeah, I think that's a, that's, that's a great question, actually. And that was one of the things that, uh, because I started my career working in business consulting, went into healthcare, and now I kind of do both, where I, I do kind of well-being stuff within within uh, organizations but what i the, what i found is that the the fundamental principles that underpin effective performance mental clarity and all that kind of stuff um are, are sort of the same for health certainly from an emotional perspective so i i think the key thing is being more body aware and recognizing that actually my body has my back my body this vehicle that i'm moving around this planet on actually is trying to look after me and rather than you know if i can allow myself to step out if i can recognize that right well there is one way of dealing with things and that's trying to just crack on soldier on patch up put a band-aid over it that's one way of, of dealing with things but actually for my longer term experience of life my well-being my performance my health i'm better off actually paying attention if something's not quite right just let's have a look at it uh, and just let's just pause for a minute and, and figure that out so uh, again it's it's i suppose it's it's having the the knowledge that if i don't pay attention to it now there's every chance it's, and if i don't know what it is there's every chance that it could just get worse and worse and worse um so it's that stop pause pay attention to what's going on and be okay with whatever it is whatever you know the thing i preach to my clients is whatever you feel in your body 
is feedback and it's not a bad thing it's a good thing it's something for you to pay attention to because is your body trying to tell you something and is that again as i've been saying that 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 message of right well if you if you don't pay attention to it now you there's every chance your body will punch you in the face with something nasty later yeah you know that's uh that is the that is really the key here is if you don't pay attention now so to build more body awareness uh in our last episode one of the things that you had suggested was stopping to breathe more um i have another kind of a question that goes alongside that mental toughness versus emotional and physical awareness because some people believe that if they're going to be tough then they have to as you said soldier through the pain how does soldiering through the pain make you weaker not tougher and being more aware of what's going on cause you to be stronger as a as a human being as a person more optimal etc that's a great great question um i think one of the fundamental underpinning pillars if you will of my work is that when we deviate from the essence of who we are the flow of energy the flow of consciousness that we are i would say our true self when we deviate from our true self then problems ensue and that's when we can become ill and i recognize that sounds reasonably woolly but you know okay part of that is when we don't allow ourselves to feel our feelings feel our feel our emotions and all the rest of it so so the at a at one level i would say okay well i can go to the gym and you know and deep down i feel i want to go to the gym i want to work out i want i want to be fit i want to be strong and that feels right that's that's me being me doing that it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks but that's me being me and um it's i i'm prepared to kind of push myself and exert myself and some of that's going to hurt and they'll they'll they, i i will might require what would be called mental toughness in order to push myself through over some hurdles but in doing that i'm i i would hope that i'm very aware of the difference between kind of good pain and bad pain um but also i'm i'm in doing that i'm aligned i'm still aligned with my true self so i'm not i'm not you know i'm doing whatever i'm doing because i'm being me in doing it um i think that we have a natural innate resilience within us but i think we have to be true to ourselves that's a deeper sense of self then you know i think we we need that otherwise i think if our behavior is motivated by uh our egoic mind or our conditioning or pleasing other people whatever it is when our behavior is motivated from that level and we're trying to be tough for that level then i think that's when we have problems so i think there's there's always needing to be you know as you know there's needing to be aware of what, whether whether something is good or bad you know i know if i'm in the gym and i'm working i i know the difference between the good pain and the bad pain so we we absolutely need that we need to be aware of okay well is there is there something is there an issue here but for me that's the thing with mental toughness i i think that again because of my work i'm very you know because of a lot of my work is about our emotion at the and there is lots of theories of emotion so there's no nestle, there's no particular agreement on it i'm i'm quite a fan of um the uh, neurologist um 
Antonio Damasio. And his one of his ideas is that, well, our emotion and our feelings are slightly different. Our emotion is a non-conscious process, which then almost instantaneously triggers feelings. So I, in, I draw on that idea and when I apply it to my work, I, I look at it from the perspective of, right, well, um, we know that it's entirely possible for us to block feelings. We know it's possible for us to get into our head. And if we get into our head, we can shut off from the feedback from our body so we can block out feelings. But even if we block out feelings, we're probably not blocking the emotional processes and processing that's happening. So emotion is kind of still ongoing because emotion just like hunger needs to happen to alert you to when you know you 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 need to eat because of course there are people and i've worked with people that say they're not aware of when they're hungry because they've learned to block out a lot of that feedback so we can do that with our emotional feelings but we're not blocking out the emotion the emotion still kind of going so that's one of my issues with men mental toughness in a kind of a conventional way of right well just soldier on you know as I was saying earlier, is that you run the risk of just blocking out your emotional truth. Now, critically for me, that's about, right, well, who I am. If I'm doing something for the wrong reasons, then it, it's, it'll come back and bite me on the ass later. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes, it makes perfect sense. And, and it kind of goes along with uh, the saying that a warrior's greatest strength is their, is their vulnerability. And, um, you know, in, in today's day and age, we've gotten away from, in some cases, that, which I believe is part of the causes of massive PTSD amongst our soldiers, is because we've gotten to this place where our warriors, it's not okay for them to express their emotions and their feelings. They have to soldier on, and therefore, they've become less able or capable of dealing with some of those emotions long-term and some of the experiences long-term because they don't have their comrades, their other soldiers next to them being vulnerable with them. And I think, it, you know, in some cases it's moving back a little bit towards that, but, you know, in, in more of a, a, an older time, a soldier that was injured or was experiencing something had all of the other soldiers to be there directly, provide that community support, which allowed them to soldier on. The vulnerability was their greatest strength because it brought them closer as a unit, right? And so I believe that, you know, with PTSD and, and some of these other things that we could use more emotional intelligence and community support around the vulnerability aspect during the crises or directly after so that we don't have to bring them home with us because we've been stuffing it for a year or two. You know what yeah. I mean? I'll tell you, there's, there's a couple of points I'd like to make with that. So I think that um, firstly, I, I think that we have a, probably have a tendency to uh, medicate people too quickly and believe that there is a problem too quickly. So if, if, if a person loses a family member, for example, they will go through a grieving process. And we understand that there is a grieving process which could give rise to uh, 
anger, depression, anxiety, a whole host of emotions and possibly symptoms that could arise as a result of that process. Now, see, I, I view that in because I think that we have an emotional system reset. So I think that we are designed to come back into balance in exactly the same way as, as our physical body does that. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're running down the road and you fall over and you graze your knee, it really hurts. But you know that if you do absolutely nothing, your knee will heal itself. Yes, it goes through a process where you know a scab forms over the and that that's really itchy and you want to pick at it but ultimately if you leave it be it your knee will heal so understanding well okay well part of the, the kind of idea of the scab forming and the healing and it being itchy and it being uncomfortable and there's 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 an emotional equivalent to that so if, i think if you're getting over trauma there there, there is you know you kind of go through a process and understanding that so for me that's that's kind of important one of the things that i say in my corporate work is that when i talk about resilience i say people that are resilient it's not that they don't feel anything it's not that they're like really happy all the time they they feel everything so which is exactly the point you just made is being vulnerable and allowing that is really important so 18 months ago i went through divorce it was all a big shock for me it was devastating it put me on the floor but I really had to kind of walk my talk and recognize that I've gone through a process of trauma here and that's going to mean that there's going to be a, my, my emotional experience and my just, you know, my kind of health is going to be impacted to a certain extent. So I, I need to expect things to happen. But crucially, that emotional system reset will kick in as long as I get on with life. So it's, I think, it's really important that we continue to move forward with a sense of purpose, with a sense of meaning um, and recognize that, well, yeah, even in, you know, moving forward, there is, I, I'm going to be experiencing stuff and that's okay. If I stop moving forward and I fixate on the fact that I've got, if I was like, oh no, I, I don't feel good. This isn't happening. This shouldn't be happening. Maybe I should take some drugs. I think that's when things begin to go wrong. I think if we, I think, I think people are far more resilient than we currently have them believe. I think, you know, the, the, the experience of life at the moment is that, and we get this, I think, a lot with young people, is that there is this sense that you've not only be got to have a nice car and a nice job, you've got to be having, a, you've got to be crushing it. You've got to be having a good time all of the time. And I think the problem with that is that there is a lack of tolerance for what are the ups and downs of life. You know, life is filled with ebbs and flows. And there is if you know there's bliss and happiness and there's loss and sadness and you know all the rest of it and part of being a human being is having the experience of all of those the fact that we can experience those contrasts and isn't it wonderful that we can and none of it is a problem if we allow ourselves to recognize well all of that naturally flows if we don't label if we don't judge it it will naturally flow and it's not that it's a problem as i say i think that too quickly we get in and we look at it as this is a, this is a problem so i agree with that thing on ptsd i've not really done any work with ptsd with soldiers but i'm really curious i would be really cu curious if the support was there the camaraderie was there in whether that's you know in the forces or whether it's out you know when they're when they're kind of back home and even if they're back on city street but also whether if they're if they're having this if they're engaged in something which which enables them to feel a sense of meaning and purpose and then they feel they're moving forward in their lives you know i think that they can 
the, the chances of, of going through the ups and downs, the healing process are facilitated, you know, but if there's a, oh, I, you know, there's something not quite right here. And there's, and there's an, if they're not engaged in anything that enables them to get that meaning and purpose out of life, I think then the problems can, can ensue. If, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I have worked a, a lot with PTSD with vets and, um, I used to volunteer at the VA in Los Angeles and worked a lot with Vietnam vets and so on. And, you know, there was a huge difference between the vets from the Korean and World War II versus Vietnam and, and after. And I think that in many cases, it goes along with the ending of things like the block party. Um, you know, in, in the United States, a lot of neighbors don't know their neighbors anymore. A lot of people don't know what's going on with the people next door. And, you know, I, I say the block party is kind of a metaphor for tribes, for people getting together and learning about each other and becoming friends and support systems and so on. I mean, you know, especially for men, and I'm not going to say this is exclusive to men, but men tend to believe that they don't need anybody or anything more than women. Women always say, oh, we need our sewing circle. We need our, you know, and sewing circle, reading circle, um, or support system, etc. It's a little more natural for women to be amongst other women and it's a little more natural for men to be in their cave. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to go in my cave. I'm going to lick my wounds myself. Right. And when I'm ready, I will then come back out. But we used to have a lot of men in the cave. <laughs> we used yeah. to have rituals for, for men more that would, initiate them into a tribe right and the tribe has been diminishing the tribal versions of uh of getting together to get together nowadays seems to be let's go get a drink and dinner and then you know and chat about whatever beating around the bush so to speak small talk but yeah. not very in-depth that we save the in-depth for maybe if we choose to go to a psychologist or if we choose to go to a therapist, which still is not necessarily a support system. Um, and so that's where I believe the, the work needs to be done more is in creating systems where we can get together and discuss our emotional intelligence and discuss our philosophies. And, you know, I, I had a very similar experience as you in the last year and a half, uh, divorce and, and I probably did the opposite of you. <laughs> I went into my cave and I fought myself for a long time. And I never felt like I had, my tribe because my tribe to me is it was in los angeles and so they're not next to me they're not here with me they can't come over and comfort me and 
listen to me while I'm screaming and crying. So I'm just going to do that myself. And I probably would have had a much more effective part of the, that year and a half had I reached out more and said, I need help. I am in this place of vulnerability and I need help. And uh, that is such a difficult thing for me to do, for, for most people to do. So what would you say? I know what I say to people who, who do that. <laughs> Get over yourself and start calling people, you know, your first friend. But what would you say to somebody who's going through such a tough time that it's affecting their physical health, their mental health, et cetera? I, well, I, it's, it's a first step, pretty much the same as you're saying there, to be honest with you, because I think there is that, again, it, you know, um, polyvagal theory is pretty big now in trauma, and because one of the things that that talks about is really when you look at how that translates into every practice, it's like, well, the most important thing is the relationship between the therapist and the client, which is all about connection. So, you know, that says, right, well, we, we can regulate ourselves through breathing, but the, very often we regulate each other through connecting to each other. We're social beings. We need to connect. And I think, you know, so I, I'm, I agree completely with what you're saying. Another thing I would say over here is that uh, men used to go to the, to the pub uh, uh, probably much more than they do. So I think, yeah, you've got that thing that we, you, you, you don't have, the sense of community so much you do in little places but a lot of the time not so much so people as you say people don't know their neighbors and people don't go out so much you know people don't go out for a for a beer or whatever it is so the shared experiences are, are not necessarily there so yeah I, I do i would say as a starter exactly the same as you to because i i do think that intuitively that's what people want to do it's just that of course historically those support systems those connections they were just already in place you don't have to think about it whereas of course now we do have to think about it so that it's it's recognized uh, I, I think a lot of what i do is trying to get people to tap into what what feels right for them so i would i would do what i could through a coaching session to invite somebody to to allow the natural intuitive sense to come to the fore. My, my, my sense of it is that when that happens, that people would say, well, yeah, I want to reach out. I want to connect. I want to, I, I want to feel that everything's either is okay or is going to be okay. So it's okay. Well, how, how can we do that? So yeah, it's a, uh, it is, it is a case of reaching out and, and, it, and then explaining as well that, right. Well, if you're kind of going into your cave, and I, I think women do this as well, and I think probably more so maybe now, now that there are probably more women that are dis, and I don't know if I, I may be wrong with this, but my sense is that the way things have been historically, that, that in, certainly within in organizational world, things that I see is that very often women take on a more of a masculine energy a little bit more in order to try to facilitate their journey or their career path. So I think that you can get, women with with a, a their balance of masculine and feminine energy maybe they, they display some more masculine traits they may well go into themselves and i think again is for me it's sort of an educational process of identifying well what, what's the result of that you know how are you feeling and what's you know how long have you been feeling like this are things improving or are you you know how, how is that working out for you kind of thing and well this may be an alternative because understanding that 
this is where we came from. We came from that space where we connected. We regulated, we regulate each other through connection. It's naturally from primates through to humans. It's naturally what we do is we, this is one of the things that's been interesting about COVID, isn't it? Is that with the social distancing and people being locked in their homes is that naturally we want to touch people. We want to, because that's what we regulate each other through that. So we want to hug, we want to connect. And that's, you know, it's naturally what, what children will do. We'll see. So we all really want to do that, but it's allowing that natural kind of tendency to, to come out. So I suppose that's a probably big part of what I do is, is trying to get people to recognize that, you know, who they are, but also their, their natural sense of what, feels right for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned uh, our new world. Um, I try to, to stay a little bit away from uh, the, the debates about COVID because my opinion is typically more nuanced rather than extreme um, and, uh, and more based in science rather than in politics. So I, I yeah. try to stay away from it a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, is that distance makes for people to what, what what's our suicide rate at this point it's skyrocketed we've you know that is a stress response to isolation and lack of connection and that alone is so damaging but you know one of the things that i like to do and you do a lot of corporate work as well as as i have is I used to consult the companies both on their wellness as well as their culture. And one of the things that my suggestion is to them is that they begin to have fireside or fire circles. And what I mean by fire circle is you put something in the middle that is like a focal point of energy. And I call it a fire circle because that's more of a tribal way of looking at life. And you take a company and you take the employees and you put them in circles of, of care, so to speak. So they can actually say, here's what, I'm, here's what I'm doing. Here's what's stressing me out. Here's the things I'm going through in life. And, you know, they say, don't mix your business and your personal life, but when you're at work eight to 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, your life is your business. Your personal and your business are the same. And so this is a way that we can kind of come back to that tribal kind of community where we have the support system of our fellow employees who probably are experiencing a lot of the same things that they're not talking about. And, you know, the biggest cost to any company is what's called presenteeism, which is the stress that causes somebody to be at work and not be productive at all. They're basically absent, even though they're physically there. And that's caused 100% by stress and lack of focus due to other focused, meaning your issues, your problems. And so it behooves a company tremendously financially to take the opportunities to shift their perspective from hard costs, right? And say, okay, we're going to take a day, maybe once a quarter, maybe, you know, twice a quarter 
to really get our employees on the same page with each other so we all know what we're struggling with and we can be of support. What are some of the ways that you have worked with companies to take care of their stress responses and their, you know, their, their employee health? I mean, I think that, you know, what you've talked about, there's such a great idea and it's interesting going back to what you said before you were saying that about culture. I think that that's sort of, that's the kind of the starting point. It's a really interesting thing within the organizational world when you're looking at wellbeing, I, I find, because there are those organizations that recognize that, well, yeah, if we look after our employees, they, they'll be productive, they'll be happy, they're going to stick with us, they're going to build careers here. Uh, and that's brilliant. It's almost like the culture, that top-down culture is in place where at the top, they're, they're buying into that that notion that well-being and productivity and engagement are all linked and then because you get those organizations where they thinking right well yeah people seem to be stressed uh, so let's just try to do something or let's even tick a box so let's get a guy in to run a workshop and to just try to kind of you know give people some tools that they can deal with their stress so the first thing is always trying to, to, uh, to try to I suppose enlighten organizations that okay um, we can do so much with 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 your staff and what I what I'm always looking to do there is is empower people to understand again uh, talk about emotion talk about stress talk about what they can do but critically unless we're looking at how uh, that that cultural piece then it's it's not going to work also i think the other thing is that it's, it's really interesting what you you're, you're kind of talking about because i've been in the that that example that the, the kind of the, the the fire pit example is that um you know i've, I've had been to a few organizations where we you know they've brought me in because they want they think right, well we, we've we got people off on stress we better run a workshop on stress so let's get a guy in, get him to run. We can t teach people about stress, and and what I, because you know they 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 may have bought an off-the-shelf kind of stress workshop, but I'll go in and I'll try to tease out. Well, what what, is, what does this mean? You know, what actually is going on? Uh, what does stress mean to this organisation? How are people affected? And it's not uncommon for it to be things like, oh, actually, we used to run meetings. We used to have this big team meeting like once a month. Um, but we, we sort of stopped doing that now. So because people are on the road a lot, people kind of, people are not talking to each other as much. And Bob in this team doesn't know what Dave is doing or Sally is doing. And therefore, do you know what I mean? And then it can be, well, actually, maybe, because we thought that meeting was a just time consuming, pulling people in off the road. It actually was hugely beneficial because even though it was kind of work related, it did give people that opportunity to talk about well everything that was going on for them. So it's very much the same thing, I suppose, in this, it's because we need to be connected, we need to be talking. And I think as well, that other point you made is that one of the things I've noticed, going back 25 years, I think when I started my career within organizations, there was much more of a division between, right, well, this is work life and this is home life. We, at work, we talk about work. We talk about your skills. We talk about your training. If there's anything about outside work, we're not, we're not interested. And for years, I, I was bleating on about, well, you, a person is a person. So if somebody's got shit going on, then they're going to they're gonna bring that to, to work. Um, 
you know, you know it's going to be affecting them at work. It, it could even be something very simple. You know, you, you could have people that maybe they don't realize that how important sleep is and they're up on their Xbox till 2 a.m. every morning and then they're getting up at 6 to, 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 to work. And if they're working on a job that is required, that may, that may impact the lives of others, maybe they're working on a, on, on a, on a, a rail network, on a road, or maybe they just, you know, do you know what I mean? They, it could be anything like that. And if they're doing something which, which is impactful and they're, they're, therefore their performance is affected by what they you know the amount of sleep they're getting at home simply informing them of that is useful but we've got to know what they're doing at home first we've got to know that well this is person is a person they've got a home life which will be affecting however simple the the, the solution may be there's a home life and there's you know that's going to affect them so I think that's it's really important that people because managers talk about this now as well. They say, oh, I find that I'm managing now and I, I've, I'm always got to be a friend because what you know, especially if I've got an older manager and he'll say, well, 30 years ago, I, we just, you know, you tell people to get on with it and you, you assess whether they've got the skills or the training needed. But now, he said, you know, they'll say, well, I'm taught. Yeah, but I'm talking about much more than just the skills and I think that's I think so that you know organizations I think are, are opening up to that but that's that's incredibly important and it is finding some way of bringing in your kind of you know uh, uh, fire pit fireside idea where people can get together have an opportunity to share to vent if need be to talk to understand to process to decompress all of those things and in the absence of that yeah that's just going to be it's going to be it's, just, it's a huge issue yeah you know i i used to be part of a group called the spark group which was based on the old marx groups uh of the late 60s and early 70s it was very um very hippie culture-ish but we had a process <laughs> we had a process called uh withhold the withhold and you basically, you're sitting in a circle and you would say something along the lines of, uh, Kyle, I've been withholding something from you. And you'd either say something positive or something negative, right? I've been withholding something from you. I really enjoyed our conversation the last time. And I, I so was looking forward to having you come back on. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry that it, it's taken so long. That's an example of like a positive withhold, a negative withhold. You know, Kyle, your accent. Uh, I, I just want to. I just want to tell you. It just it's like chalkboard. You know, fingernails on a chalkboard, right? Some whatever it is. It could be deeply personal, or it could be, you know, some. But the point is, is that you're sharing with somebody something that you wouldn't normally share with them, which then draws you into them and allows you to become closer with that person. Either way, because now it's out in the open and you get to, you know, express it and then it can dissipate because there's awareness that's been brought to it. And that kind of a, a thing to me is such an important, valuable aspect to de-stressing yourself. And anytime I've gotten away from doing that and being that kind of honest it's bit me in the butt, including things like, you know, divorce and, and so on. I, I, I've been such a um, self-enabled person most of my life that it's hard for me to ask for help when I need it. And that has caused 
much of the trauma that I've experienced in life is not the traumas, but not being able to ask or express the, the trauma after it's occurred has caused more trauma than the actual trauma has. So you deal a lot with debilitating symptoms and a lot of that becomes is comes from stress and trauma. So what would you say to somebody who uh, has been dealing with chronic, chronic pain for a while, comes into your office and says, you know, I've got this chronic pain. Uh, it's, it's, you know, made me have mental fog and mental fatigue. And so now I just don't know what to do. I'm really tired and I, I don't sleep and I'm tired and I'm, I'm not sure what to do. What would be your like initial response to somebody like that and, and advice? So once we've gone over the, uh, the, the first bit of understanding what the diagnosis is, uh, so say, for example, somebody was coming in and saying, well, I've got fibromyalgia, so there's nothing structurally wrong. I've been diagnosed, you know, but I've had presenting symptoms. I've had them for a, number, for a period of time, and this is the diagnosis I've had. So I have a plethora of symptoms, muscle aches and pains, brain fog, fatigue, all the rest of that. So there will be some of those symptoms that will arise as a result of having symptoms. Um, and we need to understand that. The first thing I'm doing is going back to what we were saying right at the start is I'm trying to offer people a perspective on what might be causing symptoms. So I, I will be saying, okay, well, my approach is that uh, this is what's causing fibromyalgia. It's caused by a body and a brain that is in a very simple way is stuck in a state of stress. And that leads, there's this chain reaction that takes place, which results in symptoms. So we have to come back and look at the symptoms as useful messengers. And people with fibromyalgia and, and similar conditions will experience fluctuations in symptoms. So most people will experience a, a baseline level of symptoms that seem to be ever present and then symptoms that go up and come down over and above that. And I will say, well, what's happening is, is that when you notice an increase in symptoms, and it may be that you've you try to tune out from it because they seem to be there all the time, but we need to tune back in because we're approaching it from the perspective of my body's trying to tell me something. When you notice that, that increase in symptoms, we want to translate that back into, into a message. And in, in many instances, it's something to do with um, emotion, what's happened to, to our emotion, and then there's a behavioral implication of that. So it's either about emotion or I'm kind of, if the, the way I phrase it, I'm deviating from the flow of my true self. And the idea being that I'm, you know, there's, this is part of us that just wants to be who we are to flow. And if that is inhibited, then problems will ensue. So that's how, that's how I start. Uh, and it's, again, very often when people have symptoms of chronic, either chronic fatigue or chronic pain, they are looking to give me something to manage my symptoms. Uh, and it's, uh, and it's that I need to manage my life. You know, my, yeah, my symptoms have got worse. It's 2.30 on a Thursday afternoon. I was kind of okay. In the last half an hour, I noticed my symptoms get worse. Oh crap, that's going to mean X, Y, Z. I need to get home. I need to lie down. I need to, so I, I'm turning that around and say, okay, well, you may, you may, might be that your body's not necessarily telling you to rest. It may be, so we need to have a look at what's going on, um, both externally and internally, so we can understand, well, what might the message be? 
um, behind those symptoms. And as I say, this is why the diagnosis is important because when when the symptoms are you know come under that category of medically unexplained, invisible, functional, those sorts of things, then I'm I am coming from it from the perspective of all right, well, it means that my little way of looking at it is saying, but we've got a stress bucket and the stress bucket is overflowing. And as I say, that stress bucket is it, you know, what goes in there can be environmental, physical, emotional. Um, even though most of what I'm looking at is the deeper, more complex emotional patterns, it, it's, you know, I am factoring in that thing of, you know, well, if you've had a transatlantic flight and you've had eight beers on that flight, you know, there's a lot, that's all that's in your stress bucket, you know, so we, we, have, we have to factor that in. So if you're more prone to symptoms, you know, if you get to the hotel, the other side, and your room's not ready, that might be the final little piece which triggers massive symptoms for you. Um, had you not had a transatlantic flight in those eight beers, it could be that, you know, that little upset of your room not being ready, if you're a local, that may have not triggered some, some, some symptoms for you. So it's trying to, I'm, it's trying to decipher in that way, but in many instances, it's, it's a bigger, bigger emotional piece. But that's to say, that's how I approach it, is from there, when people begin to uh, say, oh yeah, actually, because initially people will say, oh, I get my symptoms all the time. And they say, well, let's just have a deeper look. And then they'll say, well, actually, yeah, the symptoms do increase. I do get times when they're, they're worse. So then we begin to, to get, there are patterns. So everybody will have, there are kind of key triggers which relate to what I think are deeper life lesson issues, if you will, for each for each person. So most people will have between three and five kind of key triggers, which are emotional triggers for them that ultimately lead to symptoms. And then the, the difficult work is then and is, is, is dealing with that. Sometimes it's a, it is a simple acknowledgement of, of, of emotion and of a behavioral change. Other times it can connect with that deeper sense of self and how I, how I see myself in relation to the world. And that is, that's a little bit harder, a little bit harder to deal with, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. And, uh, so I, and I, so how I relate to some of what you just said is I, I look at, life on a physical energetic you know emotional level right so if i'm watching a nervous system in my mind the nervous system has a trigger that is a stressor and the nervous system then lights up with electricity starts sending chemical signals that cause inflammation to certain areas that inflammation is the beginning of disease and if you look at the locations of the nervous system that lights up, like somebody who has joint pain, you were talking about fibromyalgia, joint pain, is when you're in fight or flight, all of your blood flow goes into your extremities and out of your organs, thereby causing your organs to not work properly, especially if you're in chronic fight or flight. And it causes your muscles and your joints in your extremities to start having pain symptoms of you know over inflammation you get joint pain you get chronic fatigue you get uh, uh, you know eventually fibromyalgia and things like that because your nervous system is so inflamed 
and your body is in fight or flight and the inflammation is spread out from there away from your organs, thereby causing your body to not function properly and causing your muscles and joints to have pain. So that's how I look at what you just said. <laughs> it's, it's my way of, of explaining in my own mind what you just said. And I hope that that explanation kind of helps some of the, uh, the listeners as well, if they're assessing, okay, so where's my body right now? What is, what am I feeling? What is, what is the trigger? You know, and, and you can see, uh, somebody driving down the road and all of a sudden, you know, somebody cuts them off. Is that a trigger for you? If it is, where do you feel it? And I think that this is one of the ways that people can begin to have that self-awareness that you keep talking about as it comes to stress symptom, you know, stress symptom disease, basically. Mm. Yeah. Is that about? about oh, it? yeah, no, I, I go with that totally. I think that my, um, my approach has been very much kind of at the coal face, if you will. So it's I've always been interested in trying to figure out what works for people so there is a, a little bit of science in 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 what I say but I've, I've always been much more focused on all right well this is your experience I'm, I'm, I'm you know I've got this simple scientific perspective but what we what I need what I focus all of my uh, attention on is how we can, how can we make something practical out of that that you can do something with that is going to help you get to where you need to be because obviously there's this you know this huge debate about exactly what you know when you've got people with chronic fatigue me uh, fibromyalgia as to what exactly is going on what's the cause and all the rest of it and you can get you know you can get down a rabbit hole and get lost in all of that and as I say, my, my focus has always been trying to get people on into a process that seems seems to work. Um, but yeah, no, I totally go with everything that you just said. That kind of that all sort of makes sense to me. I suppose I'm looking at it from, you know, which again, it's it's theory. But my, the theory is, well, it's almost a little bit like, uh, you know, if if that nervous system is just constantly ramped up. So rather, you know, if, if it's if on a scale of naught sort of to 10, it sort of normally rests around a three. It's almost like it's on a seven. So it's already it's like you've already got your foot on the gas pedal. So it doesn't take much to to spark something. And yeah, so I'm looking for that emotional piece with that more and more, probably more often than not. But there's so much that I don't understand in terms of the intricacies of kind of what's going on at a cellular level within the body um but that's that just doesn't be my focus really thank you so much for listening to part one of this interview stay tuned for the next episode when we resume this conversation right from where we left off thank you for listening to this podcast i appreciate all you do to create a new tomorrow for yourself and those around you if you'd like to take this information further and are interested in joining a community of like-minded people who are all passionate about activating their vision for a better world, go to the website createanewtomorrow.com and find out how you can be part of making a bigger difference. I have a gift for you just for checking it out and look forward to seeing you take the leap 
and joining our private paid mastermind community. Until then, see you on the next episode.